I want to invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 7. We've been in Ezra for the past uh, several weeks. And this morning I want to talk about discipling people to encounter God's presence. Uh, I'm sure you know from many presentations that I've made about the fact that I love biographies, I love memoirs. I, I bet I read 50 to 60 a year. I love them. And I love especially those biographies and memoirs where people come to Christ under very, very unusual circumstances. This past month, I read two memoirs back-to-back that illustrate something about uh, the presence of God. The first one was about a uh, Navy SEAL named uh, Remy Adeleke. He wrote a book called Transformed, and this is really a fascinating book. He, uh, He grew up initially in Nigeria, but he comes to the United States lives in the Bronx, and his life is going downhill fast once he gets into his teen years. He's getting into all sorts of trouble. Through a really unusual set of circumstances, he's able to join the Navy, become a Navy medic, and then become a Navy SEAL. Through this entire time, he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. However, he is encountering all of these these leadings, All of these coincidences, all of these circumstances, doesn't know how to interpret them at the time. And then through a a real twist of circumstances, while a Navy SEAL, he comes to Christ. And all of a sudden he realizes all of these circumstances that I was encountering for like 10, 15 years, this was God opening up the door, opening up relationships so that I would come to know Jesus Christ. He didn't know that though until the guy who discipled him was able to put the pieces together and say, God was involved in your life in amazing ways for at least a dozen years before you came to Christ. How cool of God to do that, huh? So then I I, I read that book, and then I read a book that's completely the opposite kind of book. This is called The Shot Collar by Casey Diaz. Uh, this, is, this is quite a disturbing book. It's about a gangbanger in L.A. who ar- arrives from El Salvador. He has an alcoholic father, a mother who is working all the time. He goes out to the streets of L.A. to find love in the gangs. And by the time he's 12 years old, he is murdered. He has beaten up people. Uh, he, he's, he's bad to the bone. He's so bad that before he turns 20, he is imprisoned in New Folsom Prison in California, a very, very bad place to be imprisoned. Any place is bad, as far as I'm concerned, but that's an especially bad place to be imprisoned. And it was so bad that he scores a six-year solitary confinement sentence. That's enough to make most people crazy. One night, one night, a woman comes by his door. She says, Who, who's that guy in there? And the guard says, you want nothing to do with him. He is, he is worthless. He will never change. This was a, a chaplain, a volunteer chaplain. And Casey Diaz, about a month later, saw on his solitary confinement wall a movie of his life, a vision of his life. And there was Jesus dying for his sins and Jesus calling out his name, Casey Diaz. And he 
says, I need to see a chaplain. I need to see a chaplain. The chaplain leads him to Christ. The chaplain interprets what happened on that cell wall. He had a vision of Christ on that cell wall. And Casey Diaz begins to rapidly grow in Christ. Now he's a pastor in L.A. within, within a mile of the places that he was destroying as a young teenager. Two stories. The theme of the story, I mean, two, two very different stories. One guy, you know, you'd say he was the best of the best, Navy SEAL. Other guy, worst of the worst, he was a, he was a gang member. Same theme. And the theme is God's presence was leading and guiding both of these people long before they came to know Christ. And they had disciple makers who helped them interpret the presence of God. Now, that's what we see in Ezra chapter 7 this morning. What we see is that God loves to manifest His presence, and we need to learn how to live in it. I want you to think about something. Think about God's passion for relationships. God seeks a relationship with Adam and Eve, and He walks with them in the garden. God seeks a relationship with Abraham, and he leads Abraham to a new place, his presence showing up powerfully from time to time. God spoke face-to-face with Moses as with a friend. Gosh, I wish I could just listen in to some of those conversations that Moses had with God, friend to friend. God loves relationships. Jesus chose 12 disciples, and, and it says specifically in Mark 3.13, he wanted to be with them. Uh, Jesus asks us to abide in him as he abides in us. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. If there's one thing about God, he wants to be with us. He wants relationship. But like Remy Adeleke and Casey Diaz, we need somebody who to disciple us into that encounter so we understand how all of that, all of that works. And I'll be honest with you, this is lacking for a lot of followers of Christ. There's a lot of followers of Jesus who, who were taught that the Christian life is about doing things. Do, do, do. Perform, perform, perform. And the priority in the Christian life is that we relate to God and that He gives us the strength to do what He calls us to do. But we need to be discipled into that, and that's what we see in Ezra 7, 1 through 28. So let me tell you the story of Ezra, and, uh, and this is a fascinating story. This is one of, one of the great chapters of the Bible. In 458 B.C., Ezra leads a group of exiles to return to Jerusalem. And the story begins with three words, now, after, this. That forces us to go back to after, after what? Well, when we last left this book, uh, 515 B.C., we see there's a return under Zerubbabel. And we've been, we've been studying about Zerubbabel for the first six chapters of Ezra. Well, 57 years later, um, 458 B.C., there's a second return under Ezra. Zerubbabel's return was 50,000 people, about. Ezra's return was about 1,500 people, about. Much smaller, but as we'll see, a very significant mission. When Zerubbabel arrived in Jerusalem, there was all sorts of problems. I mean, there were political struggles, uh, there were legal struggles, there was discouragement among, among the workers, and a construction project that should have taken four years max ended up taking 23 years. And when the temple was finished, it didn't look like much. It was very humble, 
and it was very small. Now, if, if only they could have peered into the future, right? Because that temple that they built was going to become the temple of Herod the Great. He would renovate that temple. That would become the temple where Jesus was dedicated. That would become the temple where Jesus did some of his miracles. That would become the temple where the Holy Spirit would come in power on the day of Pentecost and Peter would preach a sermon. That temple would become one of the great wonders of the ancient world. They didn't know that at the time. It was a humble, small, little, seemingly insignificant place. And I want to give you one quick insight about the presence of God based upon that. God's presence and power often shows up first in the small place, not the big place. Um, we can be impressed with bigness, with big stadiums, big revivals, big productions, big best-selling books. But the Bible is clear that God's presence shows up first in the humble place before it shows up in the big place. Like, for instance, God's presence shows up in Mary's womb before the religious leader's boardroom. God's presence shows up in Jesus in Bethlehem before it shows up in Jerusalem. God's presence shows up with fishermen in Galilee before it shows up with leaders like Nicodemus. God loves to manifest his presence first in the humble places. And that's important for us to realize because we learn how to work in the presence of God in humility first in our homes, with our friends. Back to the story. As we move into Ezra chapter 7, we're jumping 57 years into the future, and we're introduced to two more characters. Character number one is King Artaxerxes I. King Artaxerxes um, is a really seemingly great guy. He is the son of King Ahasuerus uh, of Esther, uh, he is the great-grandson of, he's the grandson of Cyrus the Great. He's the king who will support Nehemiah's return to the land 12 years later. And it seems like he's very engaged and very involved. And since his grandfather sent exiles back to the land, he thinks, I'm going to send my set of exiles back to the land. And so we've got a good king. And we have a second character, and that's Ezra the scribe. Ezra the scribe's ministry is about 480 to 440 B.C. And Ezra's an amazing guy. In the reign of Artaxerxes, Ezra comes on the scene. He's the son of Saraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriloth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phonias, the son of Eleazar. Now we come to the paydirt. Like, why do we have all these names? Because now we come to the paydirt. Who is this guy? He is a descendant of Aaron, the chief priest, Moses' brother. This is a guy with an incredible pedigree. So if anybody can lead the people of God back into the presence of God, it would be this guy who was a descendant of Aaron. What does he do? Well, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord 
his God was upon him. So here's the deal. The temple's been completed, but because they don't have the Word of God with them in its fuller form, I mean, maybe they had some scraps, but I mean, they don't have the Word of God in its fuller form. Ezra comes to bring God's Word to the temple. Now, let's see what kind of a, kind of a guy Ezra was. We see three qualities about this guy, and I love these qualities. These are qualities that every follower of Christ could embrace as their own. He was, first of all, committed to God's Word, passionately committed. It says he was skilled in the law of Moses. Now, to understand this, we've got to take a pause and think about the historical situation. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 605, 597, and 586 B.C., he leveled the place. And when the exiles went from Jerusalem to Babylon, the one thing they wanted most of all were the scrolls. They wanted God's Word. But God's Word back then was not represented by a big, thick, black book that said Holy Bible on the cover. God's Word was represented by dozens and dozens and dozens of scrolls, handwritten scrolls, written in the Hebrew script, most likely the old Hebrew script. And so they're carrying these dozens of scrolls. They're wrapped with Gore-Tex protective lining. No, just kidding. But they are protected because this, this is their lifeline to the Lord. This is where the promises are. This is where they can encounter the presence of God in the context of His Word. What we also need to understand about these scrolls is that some of them were already God's Word. Some were notes that would be compiled into God's Word. For instance, we know that the Psalms were, were compiled and edited and put in their final form way after David. So who was the person who, who edited many of these books of the Bible, getting them into their final form? You guessed it. It was Ezra. Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles, most likely. He probably was the author behind his book, probably edited Nehemiah. Hebrew tradition says that he edited 24 of the 39 books into their final inerrant form. So this is a, this is a significant individual. Once it was edited into its, into its form, Ezra then began to study it. And think about how he studies it. Verse 6, it suggests unusual skill, extraordinary skill, world-class skill. Listen, when a, when a, when a, a quarterback... When a quarterback stands behind the center, he, is, he has world-class skill in reading the defense. He has world-class skill in his ability to memorize his entire offense. So if there is something going on in the defense, he instantly realizes what he's got to do and he can call an audible. That's what the word skilled means as applied to Ezra the scribe. He was incredibly skilled at understanding the breadth of God's Word, and then being able to apply that. So here's the second quality of Ezra. Ezra is a man who lives constantly in the presence of God. Now, how do we know that from this chapter? This is the fascinating thing. The word hand 
is mentioned four times. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord his God was, was on him. Verse 9, the good hand of his God was upon him. Verse 25, the king says, the wisdom of God, uh, your God, that is in your hand. Verse 28, the hand of the Lord, my God, was upon me. Notice also when this is written that twice it's the narrator who says this, one time it's the king who says this, and one time it's Ezra who says this. So this is a triple affirmation that Ezra is constantly living in the presence of God. Now, one of the things that I, I just, I, you say, well, well like, what, how, what does that mean? What does it mean, presence? Well, the word hand is a figure of speech where the part of someone is used for the whole of someone. It's an anthropomorphism where the part of God's hand symbolizes his entire presence. For instance, we were in Seattle some years ago. My daughter and son-in-law wanted to go out on a date. So we took care of their five, their five kids. So one of the boys said, he was sad that mom and dad were leaving. So I went into his room and I rubbed his back. And as long as I was rubbing his back, he was okay. As soon as I thought he was sleeping and I tried to sneak out, he says, Papa, don't leave me. Don't leave me. My hand symbolized the entirety of my presence. And that's what's happening here. Ezra is a man who lives constantly in the presence of God. Now, let me just make something really clear. Uh, you can know God's word like Ezra does and not encounter his presence. You can. I know a lot of people who have mastered God's word, but they don't encounter the presence of God. It's, it's as if they think about the Trinity as if it's Father and Son and Holy Scriptures. And they forget about the privilege of living in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. When you're somebody who knows the word well and does not live in the presence of God, your knowledge puffs you up, but you're not a lover of people, right? And so Ezra was a man who knew the word, but he also knew what it was to live in the presence of God. That's my heart for grace. My heart is that we would be full of God's word, but also full of the spirit. That we would have the best of the word and the best of the spirit at the same time. Now we come to Ezra's third quality, and Ezra's third quality is he equips others to know God's word and, and to operate in uh, the presence of God. So we see that in verse 10. This is one of the great verses in the entire Bible. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We could just even outline the verse this way. Ezra had set his heart to, one, study the law of the Lord, secondly, to do it, and then third, to teach his statutes and rules within the community of the faithful people. We could even map it out this way. He makes a decision to launch a process. First, he's going to study the word for himself, then he's going to apply the word, then he's going to teach the word, and he is going to do this with God's covenant people in community. Now, I love the process here because he's studying the word first for himself. He wants to inculcate the reality of God's word in his heart himself. 
and then he's going to do the word. You know, I mean, that's the, the, the focus of the Bible. I mean, you know, James tells us, you know, don't just be a hearer of the word. Get out there and do it. Put it into practice. Jesus, when he's talking about discipleship, he says, look, I want you to train people to obey. And it's, it's not like Jesus says, train them to obey like 50% of what I've taught you. I'd be satisfied with 50%. No, Jesus says, train them to obey 85.4%. Doesn't say that. No, train them to obey all that I have commanded you. The vision is that we are to apply the whole thing, which is a lifetime commitment. And then, and then he teaches God's word to others. And he's doing this in the context of a broader, a broader sort of, sort of community. After all this preparation, um, and you know, the, Ezra does, uh, Ezra gets the desire of his heart. The king speaks to Ezra. Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, I want you to appoint magistrates and judges who may judge the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And here's the key, those who do not know them, what does he get to do? He gets to teach them the things that he has studied and applied himself. Here's a guy who is getting the desire of his heart in a big way. One, one more ap brief application before we, before, we move on, before we move on. Think about Ezra for a second. You know, six weeks ago, I said, we're going to study Ezra. Some of you said, uh, like, where's that in the Bible? Like, I know Nehemiah, but I don't know much about Ezra. And who is this guy? And why, why should we even study him? Like, what kind, of a guy, what kind of a guy is he? I bet you didn't know that he, com he compiled many of the Old Testament books into their final and errant form. But he did. I bet you didn't know that he was a major leader responsible for a renaissance of learning among the Israelite people. That was what he did. Uh, and this underscores the thing about faithful disciple-makers. Faithful disciple-makers know the power of multiplication. They're not trying to be a big deal. They're not trying to be famous. They're not trying to be awesome. What they realize is if I can just get with people one-on-one -on -one and in small groups and equip them to live in God's presence and to apply God's Word, I will multiply my influence over many, many generations. That's Ezra, Ezra's passion. Ezra is the quintessential disciple-maker. And so now Ezra makes his epic trip. And here's his trip. In the, and there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. Why are they coming? Because to live in the presence of God, you need to be a worshiper. And so they've got worship leaders going with Ezra to assist in that. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. So let's, let's think for a second about how this may have happened. One day I envisioned Ezra going to Artaxerxes with a proposal. King, would it be possible for me to lead a second delegation of people around the Fertile Crescent and into Israel? Can, can, can we do this? I mean, I've, I've compiled much of God's word. I want to bring it there. I want to bring the worship leaders there. I want them to be full of the word and full of the spirit. He didn't say it exactly that way, you know, but I'm, that's, that's, the, that's the sense that he has. The king convened his seven counselors, 
Set of the seven counselors. What do you guys think? Everyone gave a thumbs up. He gets permission to go. So Artaxerxes writes one of the most amazing letters in all of human history. And it's contained in Ezra chapter 7. It spans verses 12 to 26. Rather than reading it, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. First, the king identifies himself. They realize this is a royal document, and this document is going to be part passport, part royal decree, part blank check. And so the king gives Ezra a massive amount of money. Part of the money, if I'm reading the text correctly, comes from the king and his counselors themselves. It, it, it suggests that the king and his counselors took up an offering from among themselves to give to Ezra. Uh, that's kind of incredible. Additionally, Jews in the realm took up an offering. Furthermore, they're going to take back things from Babylon that were still there that didn't get uh, transported before. And then the king gives guidelines about how to spend the money. He says, I want you to spend the money for worship. For instance, the king says, buy grain, bulls, rams, and lambs for the regular daily sacrifice, for the seasonal sacrifices, and so on. The king continues, quote, Ezra, well, it's not a direct quote, but he says, you're going to encounter other expenses as well. So go ahead and spend money on, quote, whatever else seems good to you. Like, how, how would you like it if somebody who had a lot of money says, you're going to have a lot of expenses. Just, just spend whatever seems good to you. Just do it. Like, how would you feel about that? Like, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's the quintessential blank check. Um, Ezra receives guarantees for even more money. The letter informs the treasurers beyond the Euphrates that Ezra can draw money from their treasuries. And then verse 22, if Ezra wants, he can draw up to 100 talents of silver. Look, that, that is three and three-quarter tons of silver. It would amount to $1.4 million in today's currency. And the silver was just the beginning of what he could request. He could request all sorts of other things as well. Uh, it's, he's, Artaxerxes also informs the taxing authorities that they are not to be taxed. Don't you love that? Here's, here's the best part. Not only does Artaxerxes grant money to accomplish the mission, but he grants him power because in the second to last paragraph, he grants him the power to appoint the judges and the magistrates. And then he says, whoever does not do this, they'll either be killed or banished from my realm. I mean, this is an amazing document, part passport, part decree, part blank check. And the logistics of the journey boggle the mind. I went over the math on this for a long time, and I'm looking at possibly 28 tons of money denominated in gold and silver. And I'm checking the current price of gold and the current price of silver. If I have it right, we're talking about $50 million worth of material. Some of that's going to be in the temple treasury, but that, that's incredible. Look, if, if in the ancient world you were carrying the equivalent of $1,000, that would be amazing. You would, be, you would feel like you were... You were dangerous, having $1,000 of cash on you. $50 million is, is absolutely astonishing. So they take the trip. 
and halfway the through the trip, they say, you know what? We're going to take, take a shortcut. That sounds ominous. Shortcut, really? Rather than going all the way up to Aleppo, we're going to take a shortcut across the desert. And uh, to do that, they decided they're going to fast and pray. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say they fasted and prayed because they were nervous about the money. They had a big bullseye on their back. And as the chapter closes, we discover the core theme. And we discover Ezra's intent on the journey. The core theme in Ezra's intent is to train others to live in the presence of God. We see that in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who's put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. That word beautify is a very important word in the, in the original language. Beautify means essentially this, to show forth God's glory through the manifestation of his presence. They're not going to the temple of Jerusalem to make it look really pretty and to make cool things to architecturally. They didn't have the money for that. Well, they did have the money to do all sorts of things, but that wasn't their intent. Their intent was to beautify it by making it a place where God's presence was powerful. And that leads me to the main idea of the story. Learning to encounter the presence of God is rarely automatic. People learn to encounter God's presence through discipleship. We need people who will help us understand what it means to live in the power of the Spirit, what it means to abide in Christ, what it means to receive the love of our Abba Father. I mean, some people may learn to do some of that on their own, but most people learn how to do that because one person disciples another person into how to encounter the presence of God. So I go, go back to Rimi Adeleke. He had no clue about how to interpret these leadings that he was getting from God before he came to know Jesus Christ. Those leadings were, were pretty amazing coincidences, and yet he didn't know how to interpret them until his disciple maker told him what was going on and helped him live in the presence of God. Same way with Casey Diaz. He's in solitary confinement. He has a moving image on his cell wall as if, it's a, as if it's a video. It's a movie about his entirely wretched life. He realizes that's a bad life. And then Jesus calls him, calls him by name using a part of his name that nobody ever used. Casey was his nickname. His, his real given name was Darwin. And that was the term that Jesus used in that vision on that, on that cell wall. This is true in my life. I mean, I came to Christ in high school. And I can remember walking down my, the halls in my high school, and I'm, I'm, something's happening in my life. I don't know what's going on. And the person who discipled me said, that's the presence of God. You can learn to live in God's continuous presence. I'm incredibly thankful that I had somebody in my life who taught me early on what it meant to live in the presence of God. Um, I'm sure that's true in this room, where you, you were at a place where you did not know how to live in the presence of God, and then somebody discipled you, and you learned what it was to live in the presence of God. Well, now you've got something you can share with other people. Um, so here's, here's the premise. My premise is that people need a disciple-maker who is full of the presence of God and who can disciple others into it. So let's look at some takeaways. 
my, my main takeaway is that you can become an Ezra in your sphere of influence. So here's some, here's some thoughts about that. First, first of all, God's calling you to become an Ezra in your family. He is. He's calling you to become an, an Ezra inside your family. You, you can be an Ezra as a mom. You can be an Ezra as a dad. Ezras are people who think about bringing the Spirit and the Word into their family. If you have young kids, the prime time for this is bedtime. It is, because in bedtime, kids are open and receptive. They don't want to go to bed, right? They want to stay up. So if you are with them at bedtime, you know, that's, that's a good thing. They're motivated. And, you know, when you, when you are a big adult person and they're a small child, you are mediating the presence of God to them as you pray over them, as you talk about their day. They're, they're small, you're big. They have no authority, you have lots of authority. They're open to you because, because they love you. You, in a way, represent God the Father to them. And if you have a young child, you can, you can be a model of the presence of God. And, and that's a great thing because it, it helps them understand what God's like. Um, I sort of hesitate to share this, but um, my daughter said something to me on Father's Day that just brought me to tears. She said, Dad, thank you. And she said this before, but this was really meaningful. She said, Dad, um, I feel like the way you were with me modeled something to me about who my Heavenly Father is like. And I thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, when you get older, you can help your kids interpret their day. What were their highs and what were their lows? Um, some people use different things, thorns and roses, you know, uh, good things, bad things. What were your highs and lows? And, and you do that. You help kids interpret what their day is like. You can do this with your spouse, you know, where, where you, you bring the presence of God into your marriage. Second application, second takeaway. Second takeaway is God is calling you to be an Ezra on your job. I want you to think about what, what happened with Ezra. Ezra um, was highly respected on his job because Ezra's job by day was he was a scribe to the king. Ezra's, Ezra's job by night is that he was a scribe compiling and editing and studying God's word. He had a day job and he had a he had a vocation, he had a, a, a ministry. And so here's Ezra being highly respected as a scribe on the job, but he's also doing a lot of great things at night. So when you are an Ezra on the job, opportunities come. Think about Remy Adeleke again. After he came to Christ, Adeleke never pushed his faith onto the men in his platoon. Never. Rather, he continued to do his job really well, striving to walk in the power of the Spirit and do what he did for God's glory. One day, his platoon was directed to a forward base. That forward base was extremely bare bones and really dangerous, and there was a lot of concern for um, bad things happening. There was no extra personnel, no frills, no chaplain. So, at Aleke's Senior officer said, Remy, 
We don't have a chaplain. We know you're a really religious guy. Will you be both team leader and chaplain on this deployment? He said, yeah, I'd love to. And so he spent a lot of his extra time studying the word and ministering to the guys in his platoon. Now, how did he get that gig? It was because he excelled at his job, acting appropriately at the job. He was ministering the presence of God on his job, and God gave him an opportunity to minister that presence far more specifically. And then thirdly, third takeaway is that God's calling you to be an, an Ezra here at Grace. Look, we have a lot of people at our church who um, could disciple somebody else, and they're not doing it. And maybe that's you. Maybe there's somebody you could be discipling. Maybe there's somebody you could be mentoring. Maybe there's somebody that you could serve as spiritual coach for. You've got the background. You've got the maturity. You're just not doing it. And I would just strongly encourage you, think about being a disciple maker who is full of the Word and full of the Spirit. We need it here at Grace. That's where ministry multiplies. You can do it. And God's, God's Spirit, you can do this. And I encourage you to really prayerfully think about this. Let's stand for a closing prayer.